And what comes after is the concept of osmolality and osmolarity, which is very important to consider body fluids and how the fluids in the body will move uh, from compartment to compartment. Everything starts with the concept of mole that comes back from chemistry. And in a few words, the definition of a mole is stated in this slide. Uh, we can measure the different uh, substances, chemical substances, in grams, or we can use this unit called moles, which is just the molecular weight expressed in grams. And that follows a very interesting story. Uh, that this guy described this number, which means that uh, in one mole of this substance, of any substance, there's always the same number of atoms, which is a very large number. And it's like comparing to the unit that we use as dozen. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's a dozen of donuts or a dozen of cars. Uh, the units are the same, but the weight is completely different. So it's kind of like that. But what is important here is when we get to this concept of mole, that we can express um, in the context of solutions because we can use this unit to express the concentration of some solutions containing different chemical substances. And we can have solutions that can be expressed like molar solutions or molar solutions, R and L at the end. And it's different because if we get to this image where we use uh, we're going to measure glucose, and uh, we prepare a solution of glucose here. In one liter of water, we weigh 180 grams, and that's the molecular weight of the glucose molecule. If you just add the number of atoms and the chemical formula, we end up with 180. Well, 180 grams contains that number of atoms that we saw in the previous slide. And if we put it in one liter of water, we can say this is one mole. One mole. We say this is a one molar solution of glucose. That's how we use this molar unit. And then underneath and below here, we see a different, I mean, same picture, but now we're not measuring the water in liters, but instead in kilograms. So if we use the, the unit of kilograms for the water, then we just change the last letter here, instead of molar, we say molo. And that's how we bring the concept of osmolarity and osmolality. For water, it's the same. One liter of water is equivalent to one kilogram of water. Well, not exactly, but it's very similar to one. One to one. So that's why it doesn't make a difference to express it in liters or in kilograms. But we prefer to use the kilograms because sometimes the solvent is not water, it's a different um, liquid. And so that's what we call about osmolality. We use that unit or osmolarity. If it's water, it doesn't make a difference. But if it's a different solution, then a different solvent, then uh, there may be differences in the numbers. So that's the concept of mole. It's based on the molecular weight expressed in grams. Some examples here, molality, osmolality, that comes from the word osmose because we combine the concept of molality with the concept of osmosis, meaning that if we have a solution with a determined concentration of solutes, it will determine osmosis if we phase these uh, solutes to a semipermeable membrane. So uh, an example we see here, uh, 360 grams, two moles, because one mole is 180, of glucose solution and 180 grams of glucose and 180 grams of fructose, each one molar solution, will have the same osmolality. Even though there are, in the first solution, there's just glucose. In the second solution, there's a mixture of glucose and fructose. It doesn't matter. If we express this in terms of moles, both solutions will be two, mol two molar solutions, or two or small solutions to make it more uh, uh, explicit for the concept of osmosis. And we represent that 
slide in this picture, you see this familiar system of a beaker with a balloon inside. Inside the balloon, we have the two moles of glucose, or two moles. And outside, the mixture of glucose and fructose, which is also two moles. So there won't be osmosis here. Net water, net movement of water will be zero here, because it's the same concentration in both. So we prefer to use this term of smalls to make it better, make it clear, and use numbers that are uh, whole numbers to understand that there is or there is not osmosis across that particular membrane. And this same model works for a cell. It's just amino smalls inside and outside the cell, and we can predict uh, if it's going to happen, osmosis is going to happen or not. Same thing for the electrolytes. Sodium chloride. With sodium chloride, we prepare a solution of sodium chloride. This molecule will dissociate into their elements, sodium and chloride. And sodium chloride solution will actually will have two small solutions. It will be a two small because the sodium chloride will dissociate in two units. And what it counts is the units like the little balls and the solution. And the same thing for different compounds. Um, in chemistry, we play with this and we use the different elements and molecular weights and moles, etc. There's a lot of exercises about this. But this is the main concept that we need to, uh, to remember. The number of osmoles that is expressed a molecular weight. At the end, what, it, what matters is the number of osmoles, osmolarity, to compare in both sides of a membrane to uh, predict if there's going to be osmosis or not and what's going to happen with the cells. Here are some examples. And I think we mentioned this number before. Plasma has the osmolality of 0.3 molecules of glucose, which is equivalent to 0.15 moles of sodium chloride. Remember, in the previous one, we said that sodium chloride, if we put it in a solution, it doubles the number of moles. So it will be equivalent. 0.3 moles of glucose will be equivalent to 0.15 moles of sodium chloride if we mix it in a solution. And this solution of 0.15 moles of sodium chloride, it will be the same osmolality that we have in the plasma. So we consider this to be isosmotic, isosmotic. The prefix iso means equal, same. And we can make and prepare solutions like 0.9 grams of sodium chloride in 100 milliliters of water, and we call that normal saline. And that's what we use. When someone has a dehydration, as a first IV solution, intravenous solution that we give, maybe 0.9 grams of sodium chloride in 100 milliliters. That concentration, that's normal saline. Nothing's gonna happen to the red blood cells. They're gonna, not gonna suffer of swelling up or shrinking because of osmosis, because that solution is isosmotic, or the word that we used last time, isotonic the red blood cells will be in an isotonic solution. There will be no net movement of water, and therefore the red blood cells will not suffer anything. The same with the 5% dextrose, which is a 5 grams of glucose per 100 milliliters of water. And that gives the same osmolality as the plasma, so there shouldn't be a problem. Now, Sometimes we need to prepare different solutions according to the needs of the patient. We need to add potassium, we need to add bicarbonate, we need to add other things. But always we have to be careful that same osmolality must be isotonic solution. But most of these solutions are already prepared and you just have to um, uh, put in an infusion. But all of them are prepared according to that standard. It has to be an isotonic solution, no matter how many, uh, uh, how much of each component they have. And I think we did this before the lab before, of osmosis, and how the 
different solutions, say isotonic, hypertonic, or hypotonic, will affect the red blood cells in this particular case. And that happens when we give IV infusions. Questions to this point? Now, this blood osmolality, this blood osmolality, it is regulated. It's regulated by different mechanisms. One of them is shown here. And one of the things that the regulation aims is to maintain all the cells in an isotonic solution so they will not be a problem. And one of the most important cells are neurons. If, for some reason, we receive a hypertonic solution into our blood, well, that fluid will reach the brain and will start bathing the neurons. So what's happen, What's going to happen with the neurons if they are in a hypertonic solution? Are they going to swell up or are they going to shrink? They're shrink. They're going to shrink. So that doesn't happen because we have mechanisms that quickly correct the situation so our neurons will not be suffering of this. Although there may be some circumstances where this can happen to a certain degree. This uh, mechanism of regulation of blood osmolality involves the hypothalamus, which is a part of the nervous system in the brain. And it works in this way. If, here we have the components of a homeostasis, sensor, integrated center, and effector. Dehydration, if someone gets dehydrated, that will be the stimulus, we'll lose in homeostasis. That means that the blood volume decreases. There is less water, less fluid in the blood. And that will increase the plasma osmolality. So we're taking out the water and the solutes are the same. So the blood gets more concentrated. The osmolality will increase. That will be, that will be the stimulus so osmoreceptors in the hypothalamus, in the hypothalamus, they these neurons detect the change in the osmolality. And they send signals as effect to the effectors as a response. And they are. One of the first ones is thirst. You get thirsty, dehydrated. You get thirsty, and if you are okay, you are conscious, you go ahead and look for water. You drink water. Drink water and correct the situation. Increase the water intake, and you can just fix the dehydration. But if you're not conscious, you cannot take water. You cannot drink water. So there is another mechanism here that involves a gland from the nervous system, also called the pituitary gland, that starts making a hormone called ADH. And this hormone is going to work on the kidneys. So your kidneys will start retaining water. You will not urinate too much. You need the water. You need to urinate. You keep the water. The kidneys will start retaining water. And with that, you can correct the problem of dehydration. Now, sometimes this dehydration is so extreme that even after the kidneys are trying to retain water, you're not drinking enough water, then the thing may get worse. But usually, this is what happens every day. Every day that we, let's say, are in a hot weather and we get a little bit dehydrated, we drink water, if we don't drink water, our kidneys will try, will correct this problem um, of loss of homeostasis. Now let's see the, uh, some other mechanisms of transport. Uh, and let's start with the carrier-mediated transport. Some molecules, like amino acids, glucose, other organic molecules, which are usually large, they cannot go through the membrane easily. Therefore, they need some help. 
And th that help is provided by proteins called carrier proteins, which are in the plasma membrane and help move these molecules across. Now, this is subject to certain conditions. It's a carrier, so there's a limited number of carriers. There is a maximum uh, of number of molecules that can be carried. And that brings the concept of saturation and this index called the TM that stands for transport maximum, which is the limit. The cells cannot bring more molecules than the carrier can move. And that's why we see this graph. If we start giving some molecule, in this case X, and giving this to some cell, and this cell has carriers in the membrane, we start increasing the concentration of X, and since the cell has carrier, it starts taking more, and more, and more, and more. We start giving more, the cell keeps accepting more and getting inside until the number of carriers is saturated. And when it's saturated, we see the curve turning flat. Turning flat. No more carriers available. That's the limit. That's called the transport maximum. It's usually a number, for instance, in case of glucose, the cells cannot take more than 180 milligrams of glucose. And that's a number for the glucose. Which means, in other words, that if you have glucose in your blood higher than 180 milligrams percent, then the cells cannot take it anymore. All the carriers are saturated. And you will start eliminating glucose in the urine. Because nobody can take it. And that's what happens with diabetic people. Diabetic people have glucose being eliminated in the urine. But only when the glucose level in the blood is higher than 180, not before. And again, this is a number that is very dynamic. We may have this at some point, but it's quickly corrected. People with diabetes, they have this chronically, as long as the level of glucose is uh, higher than 180. Facilitated diffusion of glucose. This is what happens with the glucose. There is a protein in the membrane that has a specific sites for glucose. And that's uh, the protein in the graph. You see the protein uh, changing configuration to allow glucose to fit in those active sites and bring it in inside the, uh, the cell. And it's facilitated diffusion. It follows the rules of diffusion. The glucose is moving from an area of higher concentration to an area of lower concentration, but it is helped by the carrier because the glucose molecule is really large, cannot go easily through the membrane. And the other type of transport is active transport. The active, we said, it involves consumption of energy. And the point is to move molecules from an area of low concentration to an area of higher concentration, up hills, against the concentration gradient. And for doing that, energy in the form of ATPs is required. These proteins which consume ATPs for uh, making this process are called usually pumps, like the sodium-potassium pump. The sodium-potassium pump is found in many cells of the body because at some point the cells need to do this, need to move sodium and potassium against the concentration gradient in order to keep the balance, to keep the function of, the, of these cells. And this enzyme ATPase is bound to these proteins, and that's what we call ATPase enzyme pumps, uh, 
it brings three units of sodium out of the cell and brings two potassium inside the cell. That's how they work. It's not three to three. It takes three sodium out and brings two potassium in. Why this happens? For different purposes. One of them may be maintain the osmolality. Sometimes we correct those morality by changing the amount of water, but we can also change, it, change the amount of solutes. And if we move sodium and potassium on both sides, then we can correct the osmolality in either side. So that's one of the purposes of the sodium-potassium pump. Another purpose is coupled transport. And we'll see how that works in the next slide. S the other uh, reason may be the production of electrochemical impulses in neurons and muscle cells. How come? Those ions, sodium, potassium, they have a positive charge. They are ions. And that's something that we will see when we get to the action potentials. When these ions move across the membrane, they keep the electrical charge. So sometimes they change the electrical charge of the membrane. And electricity is just about that. The potential, potential difference, the difference of charges in both sides of the membrane. So for the production of electrical impulses in the neuron, the sodium-potassium pump is really important. And that's a representation of how the sodium-potassium pump works. We see two sodiums going out, I mean three sodiums going out, and two potassium coming in with the consumption of one ATP. Another thing you should remember is the concentration of potassium and sodium inside and outside the cell. And here the, the size of the letters are telling you that. This K is larger inside than outside. This means actually that there is more potassium inside the cell than outside the cell. Same for sodium. Sodium letters are larger outside than inside. That means that the sodium, there is more concentration of sodium outside the cell than inside the cell. And the pump is moving sodium from inside to outside from lower to higher concentration area, so against the concentration gradient, as well as for potassium. It's going uphill against the concentration gradient. That's what the pumps uh, do. And the coupled transport that we described previously and associated with the sodium-potassium pump it's a way of transport that uh, helps to move sub substances across the membrane. Um, consumption uh, with the consumption of one uh, ATP. And I think the picture will represent this better. This is how the glucose is also um, transported across the membrane. Glucose is transported by facilitated diffusion, but it can also be used in this mechanism of secondary active transport. How does this work? <clears throat> this works in this way. There are some proteins, carriers, that bind glucose. They have a site for glucose and another site for sodium. So when they open in this way, one sodium, one glucose, they bind to this protein. This protein will open in the other direction, and now the sodium and, and glucose get inside the cell and cannot go out. Sodium is moving, it's moving down its concentration gradient because it's, remember, there's more sodium outside than inside. But it's bringing the glucose, it's bringing the glucose um, against the concentration gradient. It, it's forcing the glucose to come through because it becomes coupled with the sodium. 
there is a site for glucose right next to the site uh, for sodium. In that way, sometimes the glucose, when they need, the cells need more glucose, they bring it in even though it's against the concentration gradient. So that's uh, uh, another mechanism that the glucose used uh, to get into the cell. And that's called coupled transport or secondary active transport. This is an example of what happens um, in some cells, like the small intestine, or in the kidneys, in the kidney tubules. See sodium outside, it's a higher concentration, and the glucose, which is in a lower concentration, has to come in into the cell. And by co-transport here, coupled transport, both are brought in. Sodium is getting inside following the concentration gradient, but the glucose is getting against its concentration gradient from lower to higher. But now inside the cytoplasm of the intestinal cell, these compounds, they have to be transported to the blood. So they go through the sodium, gets out, has to go out from lower to higher now, and it's moved by the sodium-potassium pump. What about the glucose? Well, the glucose goes from higher to lower, now by facilitated diffusion only. You see the three mechanisms working here in the same cell. But the point is to bring glucose from inside the intestine, the glucose that we eat, through the intestinal cells towards the blood plasma, using the three types of transport that we just described. And in that way, amino acids are moved, sodium, potassium, and other nutrients. Bulk transport, uh, meaning endocytosis, exocytosis, transcytosis, is also used for some very large molecules large proteins, hormones, which may be very large molecules, neurotransmitters, neurotransmitters, sometimes they are really long molecules, cholesterol, fats, they have to be transported by endocytosis, exocytosis. All right, question to this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or endo, exo, whichever direction they go. Now let's bring all these concepts together now and uh, talk about the membrane potential. We've been talking about concentration of solutes in both sides of the membrane, but when we talk about ions like sodium and potassium, since they are charged particles, they are going to change the charge, the charges um, inside and outside the membrane of the cell. And that's when we talk about membrane potential. There's a difference in charge in both sides of the plasma membrane. In other words, we can say outside the cell there are or there may be more negative charged particles than inside or in the other the other way sometimes there may be more charged positive positively charged particles outside than inside how this happens well there are factors like permeability of the membrane the membrane is permeable to some or other solutes and they can, grow, can go across the membrane and maintaining its concentration outside and inside but since they are electrical charged particles um, that, that has an impact on the charge of the cell. Action of the sodium-potassium pump. Or molecules that already exist inside the cell 
which are negatively charged. And I'm talking about proteins here. These neg negatively charged molecules are proteins that have a negative charge, but they are inside the cell and they don't move, they are inside. They cannot move, at least easily. So this difference in charges inside and outside is what we call potential difference. Now that's a concept of electricity. When we study physics and we study how a battery works, we see two compartments. In one compartment, there's more negative charges. and the other compartment, there are more positive charges. We establish a connection, and the electron starts moving from one side to another. Electricity. Same thing here. There's a potential difference considering inside the cell and outside the cell. And in this potential difference, the inside of the cell is negative compared to outside, which is positive. Now, who determines that? What molecules are important here? Here we have the concentrations, and this is again the same thing that I mentioned in terms of concentration of sodium, potassium. Look at this, potassium, I mean sodium outside, 145 millimoles. Inside, 12 millimoles. Potassium, inside, 150 millimoles. Outside, just five. And for other ones like chlorine and uh, calcium, Chlorine outside, 125. Inside, 9. Calcium outside, 2.5. Look how few inside, 0.0001 millimoles. But from here, the, the two ions that are most important are sodium and potassium. Chlorine and calcium, they also participate in the uh, potential difference, but the ones that determine this are mainly sodium and potassium. This is just the statement of the facts from the diagram. The sodium is at higher concentrations in the cell, and the reasons why the sodium potassium pumps brings potassium inside all the time. And the membrane is very permeable to potassium. Actually, the potassium spontaneously is coming in. And the negative anions inside the cell, those molecules charged, negatively charged molecules that I was saying, since they are negative, they attract potassium inside the cell. Those are the reasons why potassium is usually higher concentrations inside the cell. 150 against 5 outside. 150 milliequivalents outside versus 5 outside. Another interesting fact is sometimes when we have um, death, uh, a cell death in some organs, like maybe uh, an infarction, myocardial infarction in the heart, or infarction in another organ, and the cells start to die, we can measure the blood and the fluid around those cells, and we'll see increase in the concentration of potassium. Why? Because the cells are dying, and releasing all the potassium that they have inside the cytoplasm. And that makes the uh, plasma or fluid around the cell uh, have more potassium. Now the amount of sodium, potassium, proteins, all these positive and negative charged molecules will establish an equilibrium. Now this potential difference that we're speaking, it actually can be measured with instruments. We can get a couple of microelectrodes and put one of them inside the cell and the other one outside and we will re record a voltage, which is defined as a potential difference, and that's what we've been saying. Now, this potential uh, difference, it is always maintained. 
is always maintained by all the mechanisms that we've been saying. Sodium potassium pump, permeability, proteins inside the cell, etc. And we call that resting membrane potential. And we say resting because it's always in that condition. It's equilibrium. It's in equilibrium. And it depends on the concentration of each ion on either side of the membrane. If we count the number of particles, molecules, and also we count the number of charged particles, then we establish a difference. Difference in concentration, but also difference in charge, which is called potential difference. And again, we see this diagram showing us the numbers again, potassium more inside than outside, sodium more outside than inside, the presence of anions is shown here with the letter A negative. There's a lot inside, and there are a few outside. And how the movement of sodium and potassium are actually determining this resting membrane potential, which can be measured, we said, minus 70 millivolts. That is a number that we get, meaning the negative means that inside the cell is negative and outside is positive. So this is the concept that we're gonna uh, keep working with when we go through the nervous system and, and study the action potential. Now that number of minus 70 is actually an average. So we measure in reality it goes between minus 65 and minus 85, but for practical purposes, we establish an average which is 70 or about. And, um, and sometimes in other books, you can find different numbers. Sometimes they say minus 65, sometimes it's minus 75, which is it's a number between minus 65 and minus 85. And actually, potassium is the one that determines mostly this difference. Um, so what happens with the neurons? The neurons are cells that are going to be able to modify this potential difference. And when they modify this potential difference, that's when we say electricity is produced. And we call that electrical impulse. That's how the neurons work. The neurons have mechanisms to change permeability of the membrane to sodium and make the memory potential change from negative to positive in different degrees, establishing a change in that memory potential. Sodium potassium pump, it is important for this. Potassium tends to leak. There are channels that, by which potassium tends to leak. Potassium, there's more potassium inside than outside, so it's, uh, it makes sense. But sodium potassium pump is always bringing potassium back inside the cell to keep, to maintain the resting member potential and keep the concentration also in the same way. There are two things here. Concentration has to be maintained for osmosis purposes, and charges have to be maintained for um, electricity or electrical impulses. And this diagram is showing the mechanisms by which this member potential resting memory potential can be changed. One of the important things here are the fixed anions inside the cell and the different mechanisms that the membrane has, the membrane of the cell has, to change the permeability for sodium and potassium. We see that it's more permeable to potassium and less permeable to sodium. And that makes the potassium be higher inside. 
and sodium higher outside. So there's an uneven distribution of sodium and potassium, and that is the responsible of the resin membrane potential of minus 70, which is negative. If we analyze this separately, and I think in the book they have a very detailed calculation, a process of calculations in which they determine this. But in summary, we may say it is negative. The resin membrane potential is negative because it tends more to the balance of potassium, which is negative, than to the balance of sodium, which is positive. Now that's the reason why inside the cell is more negative. How can we change the resting membrane potential from negative to positive? We bring positive charge inside the cell, sodium. If we get sodium in, then we will change this negative into positive. That's actually what happens with the action potential when the neuron starts making an electrical impulse. So facts that we can get from here, memory potential is the difference in charged particles inside and outside. Sodium and potassium are the determinants, more potassium than sodium. And some cells like neurons are able to modify this resting member potential because they make and produce electrical impulses, which is the language of the neurons. That's how the orders travel from neuron to neuron, from neurons to muscles. We will study in neurons and nervous system how this happens with more detail. And, but that's just part of something that we call cell signaling. How the cells communicate to each other. And we think about this, all these things happen at the molecular level. Sometimes charged particles, sometimes other types of messengers, like uh, what we call hormones, chemical substances. Uh, and cells can communicate to each other by this type of chemical signals first. Gap junctions, which are studied in tissues. When we study epithelial tissue and interactions between cells, we talk about gap junctions, which are pores between adjacent cells that allow exchange of sodium, potassium, other substances, and that's how the cells communicate to each other. An example is a heart. The heart, all the cells are communicated to each other by gap junctions. Or paracrine signaling. Some cells make some molecules that go into the extracellular space and they are directed to neighbor cells, which are called target cells, for signal purposes. Like Interferon is a substance that is made by cells when they are infected by viruses. These cells make interferon. Interferon is released and is directed to neighbor cells. It's like an alert signal that the virus is infecting some cells. So that's a paracrine cell signal. Synaptic is what happens in the neurons. Connection, neuron to neuron. How they communicate to each other? Electrical impulse. But here, when the communication has to go from neuron to neuron, there is usually, there is a need for a chemical called neurotransmitter, which is going to bring the signal from one neuron to another. And it's a combination of chemical signaling and electrical signaling. That's called synaptic signal. And endocrine, endocrine signal involves hormones. Hormones are chemical substances, proteins, some of them, many of them, that travel in the bloodstream. They are made by 
groups of cells called glands, like the thyroid gland, like the pituitary gland, like the pancreas. These hormones are released to the bloodstream. They travel sometimes to distant organs, like the pituitary gland that we mentioned uh, that regulates the uh, osmolality. It is made in the posterior pituitary gland, ADH, and that's in the brain. And the target cells are in the kidneys. So it travels through the bloodstream down the kidneys. Well, that's a graphic representation of all this uh, type of signals, paracrine, neurotransmitter, and uh, endocrine, endocrine signal. Now these signals, if it's a chemical signal or a neurotransmitter, um, the target cells, the target cells, when they get the signal, they need mechanisms to receive the signal. And that's why they have proteins in the membrane that are called receptors. These receptors may be outside in the plasma membrane or maybe inside the cytoplasm, depending on what the signal is. Some of these molecules, signal molecules, are nonpolar, like thyroid hormone, steroid hormones, testosterone, estrogens. They can go through the plasma membrane, nonpolar, and interact with the receptors which are inside the cell. But other molecules like epinephrine, acetylcholine, insulin, which are large molecules and polar molecules, they have to bind receptors which are outside the membrane. And what happens in the cell once these signals bind receptors either inside or outside the membrane, well, they will trigger a series of mechanisms inside the cell. Um, and that brings the concept of second messenger. Because these signal molecules, they bind to receptors, usually the ones, uh, one type is uh, the, the molecules that bind to receptors in the cell. But then there are other molecules that are intermediate molecules, and that's what we call second messenger. Because they're going to send an inside signal, it's an intermediate, like that's why it's called messenger, second messenger, that gets the signal from the receptor and brings it inside the cytoplasm and activates other chemical reactions inside the cytoplasm. <coughs> an example of second messenger is calcium. Calcium works as a second messenger inside the cytoplasm of the cell. And that's a representation of this. We see this signal molecule called regulator molecule, regulatory molecule. It is binding a receptor outside if it's a polar molecule. Large polar has to bind receptor outside. But if it's a nonpolar, like a lipid soluble, it can go through the membrane and bind the receptor, which is in the cytoplasm. Now, second messengers sometimes are necessary to get that signal and bring it to whatever mechanism inside the cell, which may be a set of chemical reactions, maybe uh, a signal that goes into the nucleus, <coughs> activates the DNA, different, different other things. Another type of second messenger, and this is a, a very common, is called the cyclic AMP, which stands for adenosine monophosphate. It's the same molecule that we've been talking about, like uh, AMP, ADP, ATP. It's just one phosphate, two phosphate, three phosphates. But this particular AMP has a cyclic structure and uh, is a very common second messenger. 
And it works in this way. The signal binds the receptor. Now this will activate an enzyme turning ATPs into cyclic AMP. Cyclic AMP as a second messenger will activate other group of enzymes that will activate other chemical reactions which are involved in the particular response of some cell. An example, epinephrine it's a hormone. Epinephrine is a hormone that is produced by adrenal glands. <coughs> and uh, epinephrine or adrenaline, it is secreted, especially when we are in situations like uh, uh, fight or flight reaction. And that epinephrine goes to cells in the body, like the liver cells. Binds a receptor activates cyclic AMP, and the cyclic AMP activates reactions in the cell that will get the glucose outside the cell. Why? Because glucose is needed. We need to fight or flight. The muscles need glucose, need fuel. That's the way that uh, the liver cells react in this particular case. Other mechanism is called G proteins. In this case, it's a series of proteins that are linked to the receptor called G proteins, and they have uh, three subunits. And they work in a sequence of activation. These subunits, one dissociates uh, when receiving the signal the, uh, in the receptor and it starts traveling to another enzyme or binds to another protein in the membrane um, to activate different type of reactions. We can see it in the diagram here. Initially, we see the um, unstimulated state here. We see the G proteins, the units alpha, beta, and gamma here. Then when the regulatory molecule binds, we see how the alpha unit dissociates from the beta and the gamma. And the alpha unit travels and binds another other type of membrane, a protein, that mediates with chemical reactions. And then after the effect is made, they get together again, the three subunits. So that sequence of dissociation and activation of other enzymes or proteins is called the G-protein uh, cycle. We're going to mention this again when we do endocrine system and see what hormones work uh, with cyclic AMP, with hormones through G-proteins, and uh, which hormones they go straight to the nucleus, they have receptors in the cytoplasm or in the uh, plasma membrane. Okay, questions, comments.